The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This podcast was funded by and developed in collaboration with Olympus Corporation. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I am chair of the AUA's Office of Education and professor of urology at Penn State Health. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to another one of our AUA Office of Education podcasts, with this specific podcast being titled New Minimally Invasive BPH Treatment Options. Um, Joining me on this podcast is Dr. John Casper. Dr. Casper is a FPMRS board certified urologist who currently practices in a large group in Raleigh, North Carolina. He uh, did his college education at Washington University in St. Louis, medical school at Wake Forest. And he and I were just chatting because he did his training here at uh, Penn State University College of Medicine, although uh, before I uh, before I arrived here on campus, but we had a nice few minutes catching up. Uh, John, first of all, uh, thanks so much for, for joining and, and really my pleasure to have you on this program today. Thanks, Jay, for that introduction. It's a pleasure to join you and, you know, get some reminiscence about the old university. No, that's super. So, um, John, maybe we'll we'll just start and we'll just talk about maybe a few different elements, but uh, let's just start perhaps at that the 20,000 foot view, which is let's just take the, the patient with BPH or, or lower urinary tract symptoms. Um, Tell me a little bit about um, what what are sort of the the the, the decision making processes that they have. Um, how do you sort of think about them with regards to evaluation, medical treatment, or some of the surgical treatments? What, what are their needs overall? Let me let me just ask you that as a starting point. So so yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great place to start because the needs have grown exponentially right now. When you look at those needs. There are 12 million BPH patients out there. Okay, most a lot majority are actually treated by primary care, and the question is, you know, what do we do as a urologist to treat these patients, and how do we do this in a workup? And the old tradition was, well, let's get them on medical therapy, and we know that of those 12 million, about two thirds, 67, 68 percent, are on medical therapy. And what we've learned from some surveys and studies is about two thirds of them don't like their medications. Hmm. So so it's really kind of changing the algorithm of how we think about it. And when I was in residency, a lot of the medicines came about. All of those drug therapies were uh, introduced during our residencies. We used to sit there and say, and uh, end of rounds, like we're one pill away from never doing surgery again. <laughs> and when we start to think about all of those things, it, it's kind of coming true because if you take this 12 million men with BPH and there are about 12,000 urologists out there, we're seeing about a thousand patients per year with BPH. And when you ask the urologists, I've been around and talked to them, and you ask them, how many of your patients go to advanced prostate procedures? Their answer is 20 to 30%. Hmm. When you look at the statistics, it's only 2 to 3%. So I say we're seeing 1,000 patients to do 20 to 30 procedures a year. Hmm. So it's interesting. 
So maybe tell me a little bit about um, th this concept of sort of uh, medication and patient dissatisfaction. Um, do you think that this is attributable, just anecdotally from your own practice, is this related to side effects of the therapy or is it related to the fact that patients perhaps don't want to be on some of these medications lifelong and, and in fact bph medications are really lifelong therapies right unfortunately you can't take it for six months and then your symptoms are obviated thereafter what do you think is sort of the dissatisfaction um or the drivers of dissatisfaction I think it's a combination. I think in the younger man, when I'm talking younger, I'm talking somewhere between 50 and 65. It's more the side effect profile and sexual dysfunction. I think if if you take the older fella, and I actually looked this up a few years ago, the average 70-year-old is on seven prescription medicines. Hmm. And then you send them to the urologist. And these are outside of urologist. Then you send them and we'll add at least two to three more medications that are potential lifetime medicines. We don't truly know what the interactions are. Yeah, no, I think your point is so uh, good in that, you know, if you look at the average medication list of many patients, especially as you alluded to, who are over 70, and um, and you live maybe where I do, which is central Pennsylvania, where you have a lot of metabolic syndrome and they have other competing medical problems. Um, you start to say to yourself, how many more medications do you want to add to this list? And and how many more do they need to be on? Right. I feel like some patients, they're willing to be on the medicines they need to be on. Uh, the compliance, I feel like, may not be quite as good on the ones where um, they 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 perhaps should be on it, but they, it's not a life-threatening issue for them to be on it. Right, right. And so I do think that the side effects and is, a, is another issue because we're starting to see, you know, everybody's internet savvy right now. So as soon as you write a prescription, they're running home, at least here in our area, and Googling whatever drug it is. And they'll look up the side effect profile. And I think with some of the medications right now, some of the alpha blockers, we're seeing um, a lot of hypotension, risk of strokes, risk. And these are pre present because I Google it to see what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. and, and they're looking and they'll see strokes, dementia, dizziness, um, uh, congestive heart failure worsening. And they're like, you're giving me this drug. Why would I want this alpha blocker if this is going to potentiate any of these processes? Sure. So, you know, we've set the landscape here a little bit. Mm -hmm. And and historically, I think the way many of us thought about the therapy for, for BPH was you would start with lifestyle modifications, then you would go on to maybe single dose, a single medication therapy, then combination therapy. And then after they finished combination therapy, if they were still refractory, then you would go on to, to, to surgical management. But, but I, I think that's perhaps not exactly true in all cases now. And, and maybe walk us through a little bit some of the guidelines changes in, in how perhaps our thought processes on treatment have have or should evolve in that regard. Sure, you're, you're right. Sort of our guidelines, exactly what you said, Jay, was um, 
you know, you do your initial history and physical, you do all the workups, you do your PSA. Now we've reintroduced uh, the International Prostate Symptom Score. So this way we sort of get a handle of where they stand. You know, are they mild symptoms, moderate symptoms, severe symptoms? What's their quality of life? And are they satisfied with whatever medical therapy they're on? So that's sort of been a new thing. I remember when it came out in the early 2000s, um, and we kind of said, this is just another piece of paper for the chart. Now we're starting to say, well, this is really kind of helpful to see where these men want to be and how severe are these symptoms. Then you go into the medical therapies, and we were always trained, start with the least invasive type of things. And, and, and now we're saying are the least invasive type of things, really medical therapy with these side effects and the combination of other medications. And that's led to the population of these minimally invasive surgical therapies. And I sort of now present to a patient when they come in, I've got three buckets of therapies. I've got medications, minimally invasive, and I have a basket of more invasives. And then we sort of now evolve that work up to say, what do you want to do with this? So then I lead them into like the AUA guidelines. Say, if you're thinking of any procedure, they recommend some kind of flow study, a cystoscopy, and some kind of imaging to measure the size of the prostate. So, so that's where I think some of the guidelines have changed. So we, we, you, you talked a little bit, I, I think you, you, the way you phrased it was very, very good. The, the sort of the three buckets uh, analogy. And, and I think one of the buckets that has significantly expanded maybe in the last five years, five, seven years, mm-hmm. is really this concept of these minimally invasive surgical therapies for the prostate, whether that be um, the office base, or, you know, it's no longer medication and um, maybe one of the bigger operations, but we've got this perhaps happy medium um, that that uh, now exists. Maybe just start off and, and talk to us broadly about what are some of these different missed procedures, and maybe not even specifically names, but just how they work, for example, and, and how, they, how they would theoretically address the outlet issue. Sure. Well, well there are three right now FDA-approved therapies, okay? There are about five more in clinical trials, and we're part mm-hmm. of three other clinical trials with our group now. Um, you, you know, one has to do with water vapor therapy or steam therapy. And the thought is you can uh, place an electrode into the prostate and squirt steam for nine seconds into each area to basically heat and kill the cellular level of the prostate to try to help with um, the BPH type of symptoms. It shrinks that prostate tissue for simpler terms. Then you have sort of a displacement therapy. Um, Both of those came out roughly the same time, like you said, five, seven years ago. And there's a way to displace with sort of prostatic tax. Um, and, and, And that has no heating, no cutting, no burning. So the thought is I'm not doing anything destructive. 
And then the third one that recently came out probably two years ago has to do with contouring of the prostate with a temporary prostatic stent um, that lasts for about seven days. And each one kind of molds and causes its own tissue necrosis. And by that tissue necrosis, the hopes are we can open the channel up, get a better flow, relieve those symptoms, and be off of medical therapy. So, so I'm going to ask you two sides of this coin here. The first is talk to us a little bit about um, maybe the pros and the cons of medications versus missed therapy. And, and then we'll talk about missed versus sort of the traditional surgical options. But let's start with, you know, medications versus missed. How do you think about this? What are some of the patient factors that may drive you towards one or the other, or, or, or maybe even the missed procedure right out of the gate? How, how do you sort of contextualize that? Uh, you know, we kind of briefly talked about the side effects of drug therapy. And I think, you know, part of our AUA guidelines show, you know, try a medical therapy first, see how they do. But now the question is, do we really have to, if we present the side effect profile of retrograde ejaculation, dizziness, headaches, muscle aches, stuffy nose, and you tell the patient, these are our side effect profile. And I kind of go back to surgical consents. When we do a surgical consent, we always have to list, these are the possibilities that can happen. But when we do a prescription, we just say, here's a prescription. It's going to make your symptoms better. See you later. So now if you kind of present to the patient, here's the list of symptoms, here are potential later side effects, then here are minimally invasive therapies, and each one has their set of risks and complications, um, where do you want to be? And I think it becomes more of an open discussion rather than here's a pill, see you later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now let me ask you sort of the flip side of that. So now you you have a patient who um, you're considering maybe traditional surgical options of which uh, there are many at this point, or whether it's laser based, whether it's just conventional electrocautery uh, versus the missed procedures. What um, how does your decision making process work, or what variables do you look at to say you know missed would be appropriate here? Uh, or, or conventional surgical approaches would be appropriate in this setting? What, what do you look at in your practice to make that decision? So, so I think there's a lot of things that I go for. You know, first off, comorbidities, you know, list of medications they're on, blood thinners. Everybody is on a blood thinner these days. You know, we, we have a hospital that we call the Plavix Palace because everybody's <laughs> on Plavix. Um, you, you know, so, so those are sort of the sets that kind of make me distinguish. Then we go through the workup. And now I do a flow, whether it's a pressure flow study, whether it's just a traditional Euroflow. I'm actually looking into home Euroflow studies because there's some literature out there that shows one flow in the office isn't as good as 20 or 30 at home to get a feel. Then I do my cystoscopy and I'm looking for anatomy. Does he have a high riding bladder net? Does he have an intravesical lobe of the prostate? Does he have prostatic protrusion? Um, then, and in my practice, I have it in the same room so I could flip him on his side and do a transrectal ultrasound. Hmm. And then I have now a size 
an anatomy kind of profile. And if they're somewhere between 30 and 80 grams, I can sort of say, hey, you'd fit into these minimally invasive if you choose. We can also do the traditional, like you said, laser therapies, um, transurethral resections, whatever it may be. Uh, and now you can consider the, the last minimally invasive, which is question of prostatic artery embolization. That's a big question mark, especially in the guys who can't come off their anticoagulants. Mm -hmm. So you, you talked a little bit about prostate size. Um, when you look at these patients, um, just in your own practice, does which is sort of the mo more important variable for you? Is it prostate size or prostate anatomy? So let's just say you have a 50 gram prostate. Mm -hmm. One is lateral lobe coaptation. The other one is the patient has a large median lobe. Does that trump the, the volume measurements or, or is that less of an issue as technology has evolved? That has, it, it depends on the type of median lobe. If the median lobe on anatomy has like a sulcus between five and seven o'clock, you can use two of the, two of those minimally invasives are appropriate for that setting. Hmm. If they're a high riding bladder neck, there's the contouring of the prostate that actually works very well because it mimics the old TUIP or transurethral incision of the prostate. So I, I think it's a combination of both because how many times I tell every patient, my finger's the worst measurement of size, you know, it, it's the worst thing. And I'll go in there thinking, okay, he's got about a 50 gram prostate and I'll do my ultrasound and it's 150 grams. Mm. So now we've thrown them out of these minimally invasives and into a more invasive type of procedure. And, and maybe just to, to sort of finish this thought process on these this minimally invasive therapies, um, are there any which are, are sort of truly minimally invasive? For example, you could just do it through a flexible uh, endoscope in the office setting. Is that... Are we at that point yet for, for some of these missed technologies? We are very close to getting there. Um, some of the contour, the contouring procedures um, are developing certain sheets that can be done in the office with uh, minimally invasive and a flexible cystoscope. Some of these trials that I described earlier are all based on a flexible cystoscope. The only things about a lot of those, they're more permanent implants or permanent stents, which brings us back to the old 2000s. You know, are we going to see incrustation, removal, mm -hmm. et cetera, where that's the thing about the contouring and the high bladder necks with, if we can do that with a flexible scope, there's no... Um, articles or implants left behind. So that's a question if that's a viable option compared to any of the others that have something permanent left behind. There are pros and cons probably of each. So I'm going to maybe ask you a few just specific questions about some of the minimally invasive uh, therapies. And, and the first is, um, where do you do these? I mean, do you do them in the OR? Do you do them in the office? Do you do them in an ASC? 
Do you do it all of these? And it depends a little bit on the scenario. Where do we do these procedures? Um, I do most of them in the office um, for the little bit of the patient that's a little bit anxious, difficult, you know, has a lot of anxiety about being in the office and doing something. Um, then I would take them either to the ASC or the hospital. I think it also governs um, the type of practice you're in. If you're a hospital-based practice, you're going to be doing these in the hospital because um, that's what the higher-ups and the governing bodies want that done. Mm -hmm. I think if you're in a state that has a a physician-owned ASC, they're doing them in the ASCs. but a majority are doing them in the office. I do 98, 99% of these in my office. Hmm. I use nitrous oxide as the anesthetic of choice for these patients. So you alluded to earlier that some of the decision-making of the missed techniques um, is a little bit predicated on patient comorbidities. and, and maybe talk to us a, a, about that a little bit and, and, you know, bundle into that. I feel like, you know, what has become so common for us is that we care for patients who are on some type of antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulation. So maybe talk to us a little bit about comorbidities, but specifically maybe the issue of managing uh, blood thinners in these patients uh, who are getting missed procedures. Right. They're, they're the most difficult, as you alluded to. It, um there, you know, but we're seeing more and more patients on antiplatelets, anticoagulants, whatever it may be, they're all getting heart stents, can undergo an anesthetics. Um, so with all of those, these mists can be done um, still on some anticoagulants. I still think it's a good idea to stop them temporarily because you know, we've all done it where we've tried one or two without it and we've regretted every minute of it because <laughs> they've bled and it wound up being instead of a minimally invasive, it's a more invasive because you're right. back in the OR doing a cystoclot evacuation. Mm-hmm. Um, so so these antiplatelets really inhibit. That's where the one thing, the prostate artery embolization may have a role because uh, according to those guys, you don't need to stop their anticoagulants or antiplatelets. But again, that's limited to prostates that are 60 grams or above. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend them. And I know people are doing it, but less than 60 grams. There's still not enough literature. The The AUA hasn't approved that as a, a, as a primary therapy for them. But I do stop these antiplatelets and anticoagulants but it, in the office setting, it allows us not to have a general anesthetic or spinal anesthetic, which helps in that situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and after these procedures, do you, do you typically leave a catheter in place? Do, they, do the patients go home with a catheter for a certain number of days? What, what's your algorithm post-procedure with regards to, to drainage? So, so I would say that that's more toward the, the prostatic displacement um, or to the steam-based therapy. Contouring, I wouldn't put a catheter in because you have the, that stent in place. But I do have four criteria to place a catheter. I would tell you with the um, displacing a tissue, 85% go home without a catheter. Hmm. 
those that do have a catheter, those that were in retention prior to the procedure, those that were on anticoagulants or antiplatelets, those that live a good hour and a half plus away, and the last one's sort of my discretion, it's a little bit bloodier than I'd like to see, most of them keep a catheter for the displacement therapy overnight in that situation and remove it at home on their own. Um, for the steam-based therapies, they're a little bit longer, somewhere between two and five days, they go home with the catheter due to the edema from the heat-based therapy. And like I said, for the contouring, you can't put a catheter in those patients. If you needed to, you can slip a small catheter around that stent if they were in retention during that week of that stent placement. Hmm. So you, you mentioned a little while ago that you do the vast majority of these in your office. Um, do, you, do you use nitrous in almost all of these? Do you ever do any of these under local? I've done some straight local. Um, you can grind through them. You know, um, you can do a prostatic block as well. But I find prostatic blocks, it's a flip of a coin, whether it's going to be a good block or not. And, you know, no matter how good you try to block them, you're still going to have that one guy that kind of getting over that high riding bladder. But I do most of them with nitrous oxide. It's safe. It takes about um, maybe about 30 seconds to get into their system with about five puffs of air of the nitrous oxide. And within two minutes, it's dispersed and they're able to go home. And actually, they could drive home, which is which I find amazing. Wow. Um, you know, you think about volume when we gave any of the benzodiazepines, I mean, it's, it's sometimes sad, but funny, you know, the, the guy comes out of the office and gets in the wheelchair and the nurse sort of spills them into the car, close the door behind them. And you get that call four hours later from the spouse saying, he's still sitting in the car asleep. <laughs> And and you just kind of say, okay, there's got to be something better and safer. Sure. And and when um, so post procedure, when do you start to um, query the patients? When do the patients start experiencing symptomatic relief? When do you start studying them to actually look for the objective improvements based on your your pre pre procedural evaluation? That That is such a great question, because I initially would bring people back about two weeks later to see how they were doing. And how do I follow them up? I did an IPSS and a bladder scan. Um, and what I found when I brought them two weeks later, their IPSS were higher than when I started, because they remember last week when they were miserable. Mm -hmm. So, so what we are finding is it takes about two to four weeks to see significant improvement. I stop their alpha blockers. Some guys are stopping their alpha blockers right away at the procedure. I keep it for about a week just to get through that edema, the, the irritative symptoms. I stop it at a week and I bring them back at about a month and repeat that IPSS and post-void bladder scan. And that's when I see the best results from any of the uh, the three procedures that are FDA approved right now. Hmm. So, so let's maybe talk about um, these these three procedures and um, and and in understanding this this may be a little bit of your personal practice, but but I'll just sort of ask you is 
as a thought leader, your personal practice. Um, how do you pick which procedure? What are some of the factors that allow you to know what procedure is appropriate for this patient? If we just look at the missed procedures sure. Uh, themselves. Sure. I, I think I like to do all three procedures. I've sort of shied away over several years the, the steam-based therapy because I see a little bit more irritative symptoms. That's just my personal practice that I, you know, um, I think about minimally invasive, you know, the less time with the catheter, the better. Um, mm -hmm. so, so when I hear about a, a two to five days with a catheter, it kind of shies me away with irritative symptoms that last about four weeks. Um, so I look at, for my practice, either the contouring or displacement, because the displacement, I know 85% go home without a catheter. And I know with a contouring, 100% go home without a catheter. So, and I can see a steady improvement of their symptoms after one week. So they're irritated. And I tell everybody, I said, you're going to be miserable for the week. You're going to hate me. You're going to pee frequently, urgently, burn, sting, um, can't make it to the bathroom, get through that first week, and it's going to be better. And I think it's both with the contouring and the displacement therapies. The steam lasts a little longer because any kind of burn lasts a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you use these? I mean, do, do you have some of these patients who um, they're, they're not thrilled with being on medications, but they're not failing medications. Right. Um, they're not quite objectively progressed, or maybe their characteristics are not enough that they need to have a larger surgical procedure. How do you sort of couch the missed therapies in, in these groups that are a little bit more nuanced, right? They're clearly not failing medical therapy. They're clearly not at the surgical realm, but you've got this opportunity perhaps to offer them some alternative. How, how do you navigate that? That's difficult, you know, because you'll see that yearly follow-up for prostate exams. And I think that's where I, you know, do the IPSS. I can see from year to year, have we seen a change? Have we seen the patient go from an IPSS of 10, which is mild to moderate, to 15 to 20? So we can see that they're slowly failing medical therapy. The other tool is the post-void bladder scan. I think you'd see some bladder decompensation due to outlet obstruction if their post-void residuals go from 50 cc's to 70 cc's to 100 cc's. They're the guys I say, even though you may think you're doing pretty well on medical therapy, you're starting to see that decompensation. Mm -hmm. And they're the guys you can actually talk to uh, and say, you know, we need to investigate this further. And I don't ever say, hey, we're going to be doing this. I say, we're going to evaluate where we need to go with this, with our cystoscopy, with our Euroflow, with our whatever measurement, whether pelvic ultrasound or transrectal ultrasound, mm -hmm. then we'll decide which bucket do you fit in sure. and do you want to make that leap? So maybe the final question I would ask for you uh, today is, um, let's say you have the patient who uh, went into urinary retention, mm -hmm. right? And so the classic teaching is retention equals surgical procedure on the prostate, right? Um, especially if they've been on medication. Sure. Um, do missed therapies fit into this realm of patients who have been in retention or, or are in active retention? 
You, you know, and I was along that same pathway where retention equaled some invasive type of procedure. Um, at the AUA, I think the last live one in 2019, or next to last live one in 2019, there were a couple of studies presented to show that with these minimally invasive surgical therapies, 84% of guys were catheter free at one month. Um, then when you kind of extrapolate and look at the more invasive therapies, whether lasers or TERPs or anything else, it's about 88 to 90%. So is it worth trying a minimally, again, when we go along with the AUA kind of thought process, we were always taught less invasive, better than more. So should we try a minimally invasive procedure, get them catheter free? Or do we need to jump to the more invasive? And then I guess uh, uh, we go back to the comorbidities, the age of the patient. You know, an 85-year-old who has a bunch of comorbidities, the mm -hmm. last thing you want is an anesthetic with metabolic changes possible, et cetera. Try a minimally invasive. Well, that was really great, John. I, I really uh, enjoyed uh, the conversation uh, as somebody who does more prostate cancer than BPH, I actually learned a tremendous amount uh, here. So first of all, thank you so much for your uh, time. It was really our pleasure to have you uh, on the show today. Well, thanks, Jay. It was a pleasure to be here. It's good to reminisce about the old times there and say hello to everyone. Uh, well, thanks very much to our audience. For more information, please visit uh, auanet.org slash university. And uh, John, for sure, we were, we're going to count on you have, making a visit back to Hershey at some point. That would be great. I look forward to it. Th thank and good luck next week. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you. Have a great weekend.